Sarah Erny is the principal data scientist at Pivotal. Sarah, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks. I want to talk about your work at Pivotal, but first I'd like to ask a naive question. What is data science? Um, I guess it's not really a naive question. It's a question I think that's appropriately asked because it means many things to many people. At Pivotal, we focus on data science really being um, kind of machine learning and statistics applied to very large data sets, encompassing actually the underlying understanding of how to process in a parallel fashion um, on these enabling technologies that exist like um, distributed databases or Hadoop, um, things like Spark. How does the term machine learning relate to data science? Uh, you can think of it as part of the repertoire of algorithms, essentially, that you're going to use. So ways for you to interpret or understand what is going on in the data by building a predictive model. And machine learning kind of has a lot of different algorithms and um, a lot of people working in that space developing new approaches that allow you to either combine features or attributes that you can extract out of the data about individuals, for example, and their behavior to predict something or to separate them into subpopulations. I read an article by a guy named Robert Chang, who is a data scientist at Twitter, and he wrote a Medium post where there was this two types of data scientists. He called them analysts and builders. And he said that the analysts make sense of the data and they operate more like statisticians. And the builders construct software systems and models and recommendation engines. Does this sound like an accurate framing to you? Um, again, I, I think everyone has a different interpretation of what it means. I, I feel like it's hard to divorce those two pieces from each other. I think Anyone who operates in the space does a little bit of statistics. It's probably hard to not um, understand kind of whether or not you believe something is sound or um, I guess test whether or not some hypotheses um, that exist within data are true. So I, I feel like you can't remove um, data science from statistics, um, even if you are on kind of more of the implementation side. Um, I, I guess... To me, maybe that's separating somebody who's a data scientist from maybe like a, I guess what I consider machine learning engineers. So if you're somebody who's maybe figuring out how to implement an algorithm at scale and not concerning yourself as much with building a model, learning about the data, extracting features or insights from it, and then sort of feeding that back into a loop, um, but really more around how do I implement this particular method, then I, I, I guess it's just kind of crossing over into a pure engineering space. And I think there's a spectrum. So I would love to begin to creep towards a discussion of those engineering practices. What is Pivotal? Sure. Um, Pivotal is a software company. Um, we do have a lot of engineers. Um, those are engineers that either um, dedicate their time, um, and they can, of course, split their time um, within Pivotal Labs itself. We have, of course, this practice that is both outward-facing, so we consult um, with companies that are trying to develop um, maybe a, a new application, um, or they need to learn how to do application development a bit differently. Um, so they can work with customers, or of course they can work internally on our own software that we produce, um, like Cloud Foundry, um, which is sort of platform as a service, um, as well as our data products, um, including our Greenplum database, which is a distributed version of Postgres, um, and then Hawk, which is that database sitting on top of HDFS. So 
um, we sort of have engineers across the board there. We also have a machine learning library, Madlib, uh, that allows you to, for example, build regressions on billions of rows of tables. So I think that's, that's kind of more the traditional engineering portion of, of what it is that we have at Pivotal um, and, and these open source software tools that we develop as well. So you mentioned two uh, data storage products. One was the Green Plum database, and another one was a product that's built on HDFS. Can you describe these two products in more detail? Um, sure. I think it's probably best to check out Pivotal.io for all of our data stack. Um, but um, as far as kind of the history of Pivotal itself, um, we are composed out of assets from EMC and VMware. Uh, VMware really is where Cloud Foundry, for example, came from. Um, EMC is where we had Greenplum, um, which is a distributed version of Postgres, so basically forked off of Postgres some 10-plus years ago, um, when it became clear that running these large analytics queries on you know, a single node isn't going to function as our data grow to terabytes and petabytes. And so as we're approaching those larger numbers, of course, it makes sense to figure out how to split up um, any sort of query that we run. For example, if you wanted to look at a large table, let's say it's um, all of the names of all of the people ever on Earth, um, and you're curious to know maybe the distribution of those names. Um, going through a table on a single node um, of billions of names is going to be quite painful. Um, and so if you distribute that data um, and allow it to live on multiple nodes, you can ask those queries to be operated on by all of the individual nodes on their own local data. So each node independently can count the number of times it has any particular name appear, and then that can be aggregated up as sort of a sum of sums. Um, and that's really where uh, Greenplum is originating from. Um, over time, of course, with the evolution of advanced analytics on top of that, um, we worked together with Joe Hellerstein at Berkeley to create uh, Madlib, which is an open source machine learning library. And that is really the foundation of kind of the machine learning side of the house that we have, um, where ultimately it allows us to build models um, off of extremely large tables that now, rather than, you know, only containing um, kind of information that you might be wanting to run I guess what we would consider traditional kind of BI queries on, which are, of course, very important to be able to understand what's happening in your data, but actually build a predictive model. Um, for example, predicting um, how long a patient would be in the hospital using a lot of historical data. Um, and and how, much, how much do your enterprise customers need to know about computer science and machine learning in order to leverage these products? Uh, not necessarily too much. Um, so it, it depends on <clears throat> the expertise level or kind of the, uh, the the set of tools that they have that they work with. So we have people that really just, you know, point Tableau at it and use it that way. Um, so that's, I think, someone who doesn't need to really understand much except, you know, here's a table and I want to visualize something in it. Uh, then, of course, we have the other side, people who are engineering uh, new products um, and, and are potentially trying to figure out how to build a new algorithm. So it would be the other extreme where you probably have a very good understanding. And then there are people in the middle, um, especially in the data science space, who want to use things like Madlib, um, who want to write SQL queries. Um, and although you don't necessarily need to know everything about the underlying architecture, because really you're just writing Postgres queries and allowing the query optimizer to figure out what's the best thing to do given the way your data is shaped, um, it, it is, of course, always beneficial to be a bit faster. And certainly in the instances um, that we run into at times where 
um, an algorithm may not be already available in Madlib, and maybe you want to use Python or R and all of its libraries. Um, we have the ability to use procedural languages, um, since again, Greenplum is Postgres, um, to run R and Python uh, in this parallel architecture, um, meaning a lot of smaller R and Python jobs. Um, we've done it, you know, for example, running millions of smaller um, models in parallel across the many nodes. And at that point, I think you do probably need to have somewhat of an understanding of distributed systems, although again, not to the extent of, I think, the way it used to be in the high-performance compute world, where you maybe needed to know how to multi-thread a process, um, lock threads, and sort of communicate information across. Um, that's sort of all still removed, and, and you can operate seamlessly on the data. What's the onboarding process like for an enterprise customer that wants to start using Green Plum or another Pivotal product? Um, I, we have a variety of ways of onboarding people. And again, I, I think probably best discussed by our product team. Um, on the data science side, we do a lot of training for the data scientists to enable them by um, offering training directly on their data if they'd like. So we can build models with them. Um, we can help run kind of a a hackathon on data or data jam um, where we essentially teach them how to use our, our tools, teach them how to use other tools on top of it, and then have them go off and try and do something really cool in a week or a few days um, to, to just sort of experience it. Um, so you mentioned some machine learning libraries built within Pivotal, and the adoption of distributed data platforms like Spark have enabled these types of machine learning libraries. Can you describe how these machine learning libraries take advantage of a tool like Spark? Um, so I get if we're just going to generalize to how um, these distributed compute paradigms work and not necessarily worry too much about whether it's sort of an in-memory system or a uh, kind of a more traditional MapReduce where it's writing to disk. Um, but the concept of being able to distribute data across nodes and operate on top of it, um, some of them allowing you to be quite in control about how data gets moved around and others where it's a little bit more seamless. Um, at its core, what you're trying to figure out with the libraries and all of these implementations is how to break a problem up into a lot of what we'll call embarrassingly parallel jobs. So essentially what you have, um, let's imagine you have a billion a billion rows and you're interested in um, running a, a linear regression on top of that. Um, there are certain pieces of the linear regression uh, where you're doing computations on each row that can be operated on in parallel across all of your nodes, meaning, for example, um, the product of a feature vector against itself, um, which is one step. So that can be run actually on all of the nodes in parallel, um, you know, whether that be uh, kind of splitting it up using Spark or MapReduce, whatever it is that you're wanting to do, or, you know, in our case, um, using the database itself and the way it stores the data. So um, we, of course, have pieces where ultimately the underlying chunks are running SQL queries or maybe small Python code on top of each. Um, and then they sort of shift the data around at a minimal level um, to then come up with a final solution. Um, and, and, of course, any sort of instance where you think about running a lot of smaller jobs, uh, maybe it's sampling on smaller subsets, those things can be done in parallel across the nodes. Um, K-means clustering is another easy example where sort of you're trying to compute the distance to a centroid for every example. Um, every example doesn't need to know about another example to compute that distance. So through each loop, um, and at the end, you aggregate that information by sort of moving those centroids around to the, um, kind of that midpoint. So... Iterative, but, but distributed. 
Can you talk in more detail about the difference in use case between when you would use Spark and when you would use a more batch uh, processing framework like Hadoop MapReduce? Um, so, I mean, I would argue that Spark is still batch. Um, in a lot of instances, it's just kind of the way things run. Um, if you're wanting to do something that's a bit more like transactional and fast, then you might be going to, to some other sort of like in-memory data grid. Um, I think the, the, use, the usefulness of Spark is anytime you're doing something that, you know, requires iterations. For example, that k-means clustering and you want to keep things in memory as much as possible. Um, whereas MapReduce, really, you write to disk all the time. Um, and it becomes kind of an I.O. issue. Um, so, so think about something that kind of streams through an entire process where you're writing to disk. Um, that, that could be much slower. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's, it's also... So, sometimes there have to be considerations um, and, and probably worthy of testing, you know, until there's kind of a full understanding about what is faster or another um, to try and test out and see what is actually faster. Because, of course, in any paradigm, um, you are still relying on kind of the underlying, um, the way things have been engineered to shift and move around the data, um, which can become a network issue as well. Um, there's sort of that shuffle period that you have to kind of trust um, and so decide, you know, what, what is most appropriate. I think you just defined something that, that's really useful, um, which is the idea that in Spark versus MapReduce, Spark keeps things in memory after you've done a certain phase of whatever pipeline of processes you're doing, whereas Hadoop or MapReduce just finishes the the job that it's doing and then writes it to disk. So with Spark, you can create these elaborate multi-stage processes, which which can be really conducive to, to machine learning, if I understand correctly. Um, yeah, I, again, I don't want to generalize too much. I think it's probably okay. uh, best to... Um, firstly, I, I guess the best source would be Databricks, as they are you know the, the company that sort of outwardly promotes and, and develops and works on Spark. Um, and can educate very broadly on what, what to do. Um, but at the same time, I think the, the use case, it's, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think what, what we acknowledge at, at uh, Pivotal is that there is kind of not at the moment a one tool fits all. And it's always important to consider what your use case at hand is. You know, if there's something that simply doesn't exist currently in MLlib, maybe you want to run a lot of different smaller R jobs. Um, maybe you're wanting to... Um, you know, actually just process a bunch of images in parallel and batch and extract features out of them. That's actually quite appropriate for a MapReduce job. If really what you're doing is taking, you know, terabytes of images, just a lot of small ones, and, you know, recognizing faces on them and then just keeping them there for future use. Uh, that's something where you could write a MapReduce job and leave it. You could, of course, do it in Spark as well, but if it's just sort of one step, um, there might be limited um, utility to forcing it into Spark when Spark is better used at that moment for something else. Um, so I, I don't want to generalize. I think there are probably places um, for, for a lot of the different types of paradigms out there. You wrote a post recently called Using Data Science to Save and Improve Lives. Um, I think you co-wrote it with a, a few other authors. What is the lowest hanging fruit? What, like, what are the problems which data science can definitely help us solve in the near future? Uh, in healthcare or, or across the board? Across the board. Whatever is the most low, lowest hanging fruit that comes to mind. Oh, I, the lowest. I mean, data science has solved a lot already, I guess. So I feel 
you know, it, the thing that I think most people jump to all the time is recommendation engines. We can recommend almost anything based on behavior. And it's, I think at this point, almost commoditized. It's like easy, you know, there are tools out there. And, okay, uh, sure. Let's talk stuff. about health. Health seems more interesting. <laughs> I, I guess mean, the lowest hanging fruit is, is almost uh, like most obviously the not interesting side yeah, of things. Probably already there. Like, um, what advertisements do you want to see? <laughs> for data science. I mean, yeah, so healthcare and life science near and dear to my heart since I have a background in that. And I think you also do. Um, yes. So I think for me um, right now, I, the focus area certainly um, in the United States within the healthcare system, I think, is around um, kind of legislatively driven um, opportunities to improve healthcare outcomes, to lower costs. Um, and it's funny because I think when we think about, um, of course, from, from the nice perspective of trying to improve health uh, healthcare outcomes, um, you know, we've done work predicting whether or not somebody will um, crash. So uh, there'll be severe physical deterioration of a patient um, so you'd want to transfer them into the ICU if they're in a hospital um, so that they'll be taken care of in a better way. So that's one of these that's like quite critical, um, but isn't necessarily a low-hanging fruit in, in the sense that, on the other hand, you might be wanting to predict whether or not a patient will be readmitted to the hospital, which, of course, is also a very important piece. Um, but it's something where really, you know, hospitals are getting dinged for this. So they need to know if they're going to discharge a patient from the hospital um, is this patient likely to come back within a certain period of time, and therefore I will have to pay for those costs um, because I let I let them go too soon. Um, it's it's probably one of the most um, maybe not lowest hanging fruit necessarily um, because you could still go back to recommendation engines with even healthcare, um, but it is certainly one of the ones that's that's being driven very very forcefully by kind of the requirements and reimbursement. Is it harder than it should be to? gather like uh, do aggressive data science on health data because of the the state of um like confidentiality like hipaa requirements and the like the difficulty of of truthfully anonymizing health data um i I think in terms of doing collaborative data science yes um but, you know, with, within any particular hospital, I, they, of course, have access to a lot of the data and, and are able to keep it sufficiently secure. I would argue that um, as secure as um, healthcare data is, I believe probably financial services data is even more secure. Hmm. So if all health data was magically released tomorrow, you know, and was anonymized to a, to a successful degree... What would we be able to do with that data? Would there, do you think there would be a fleet of data scientists that would be able to hack on it and do some amazing things? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, assuming that we can solve for that um, entity resolution problem of actually recognizing patient A in you know two hospitals, which is kind of in and of itself a big data science problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would argue that... Um, uh, you know, there there is such sparse information captured on a lot of individual patients that it's actually not totally inappropriate to try and focus in a bit, you know, on on episodes of care. So being able to say what will happen to this patient right now as they are in the hospital, um, I I would argue that in today's state, you know, there's so little that we actually know, for example, about um, 
the role of uh, genetic variation in disease, for example, and in outcomes. We have very specific examples where, you know, even a genetic variant within cancer can determine whether or not you can take a certain drug. But kind of on a global scale, it's, it's at some point it's even a sample problem. Like if we had data on everybody in, um, you know, at the genetic level in the world, would that be sufficient for us to answer all of the questions? No, I'm sure not. Um, so, so one quote from your article says, quote, patient records are also growing with advances in genomics. What information about patients are we learning from new genomic science? Well, of course, um, we can consider that kind of familial history in the sense that we have access to what it is that they have inherited in terms of some conditions. So we do know that there are, for example, variants that make it extremely likely uh, for, for uh, patients to develop breast or ovarian cancer over a lifetime. Um, and that, of course, is critical because uh, you might undergo prophylactic treatments to avoid um, developing that or to lower your chance, at least, of developing that. Um, so, so as that information, as that data grows, um, of course, that's one example where there are very specific subcategories, but it's even what happens to you over your lifetime. Um, there's a very famous article um, where uh, a researcher, Mike Snyder, sort of published everything, uh, not just his base genome, meaning his variants, but actually seeing changes over time of what we call gene expression, but we can think about how much of that genome is active over time that allowed him to trace, um, and in addition to some other measurements, for example, watch himself develop um, or become pre-diabetic. Um, and then acknowledging that, you know, there, there also was a variant or predisposition for him uh, for a particular medication that he may or may not react well to. Um, so, you know, as that information grows, as we have more patients with that type of data, we can try and make different decisions, but hopefully also try and understand you know, as we look at lab values, for example, um, you know, are your low platelets as a result of a genetic variant or because of some sort of environmental condition? So I think it's really not just the collection of, you know, your family history, but also these things that happen to you over time, tracing changes, you know, is your blood pressure changing a lot or is this just your baseline? Um, trying to collect that data is also critical. Another quote from your article is, both consumer wearable and in-hospital sensor data is growing in granularity, increasing in scope, and becoming more pervasive, end quote. And I'm curious if the volume of data being collected here outstrips our ability to write algorithms to actually analyze that data. Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I also definitely want to credit my co-authors here, Gotham and Julia, um, who contributed to this article, and I believe one of them probably um, actually uh, contributed that particular quote. Um, I think what, what we're seeing, and this is something that's happened for a long time when you think about the foundation and the history of almost everything that we do um, in the field of statistics and machine learning, um, as it evolved, you know, originally we were dealing with very small data sets and trying to derive value and understanding out of very small data sets. And you are absolutely correct in saying that as those data volumes grow, everything that we know and understand um, is going to change because we're going to have access to a lot of different data sets. So while, you know, traditionally, historically, we might have said, hey, you know, there's only one model that's going to kind of fit all if we assume, you know, we're going to predict housing prices. Well, you know, it might be that we can include interaction terms about the zip code. For example, San Francisco's housing market is extremely different from, I don't know, say, um, Little Rock, Arkansas, I would assume. Um, 
but but that we need to start gathering subpopulations and what we see that over time are the algorithms we generate yes have to try and address the the problem of data scale but potentially over time we're having to understand anomalies within the data as well that you know maybe we would have tossed those out but over time as data volumes grow maybe anomalies are actually more meaningful subpopulations that may evolve um, that we might want to consider interesting so Medical imaging is also changing due to data science. And one way I think about this is radiology is a field where a computer is often better than a human's naked eye at identifying problems. But a human working together with a computer performs even better than just a computer. So I'm curious. I mean, we're currently in the state where human-computer interaction is, is fantastic, but are we going to see a day where a computer is simply better than even the human working with the computer? Like the computer alone will just do a better job? <laughs> That's a, I, I think that that is like a fear that a lot of people <laughs> I know. Are, are kind of putting out there that we well, should fear mongering sells podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to claim any way. I think, Maybe you're referencing um, things like deep learning um, that have kind of allowed us to take away what we consider, I think, the fundamental human element that existed in machine learning, which was this concept of feature engineering or extracting those variables that you're going to put into an algorithm. You know, when you think about something like housing prices, again, let's go back to that. Um, We're doing a linear regression trying to predict how much a house is going to cost, of course, you'll sit there and think, okay, well, I care about, you know, the number of square feet, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, um, you know, maybe other things that you can measure about the neighborhood. Um, and, and those were things where there was this portion of human intellect that went into it. Um, so not just the human computer interaction that you're speaking to, but actually the part about designing what is going into it. And, um, you know, in the space of deep learning, we're essentially saying, no, um, let's not even ask humans to try and understand the patterns that might feed into something. Let's allow the machine to actually get down to the pixels and determine what is there. Um, Beyond that, trying to sort of have humans feedback, I guess the the only thing I would hope is that the desire that um, kind of AI is built to serve people and not machines, although that's not true with Internet of Things, but still, um, I think hopefully um, the, the fear part is removed, but um, certainly so, I mean, it could improve. So you took a very uh, objective phrasing there with the saying, you know, we're removing the human intellect. I would say, and maybe you would disagree, but I would say that the human intellect Thing you're kind of using that as a euphemism for human error. Like, uh, don't don't you think we understand uh, psychology well enough to sort of um, hand off that aspect to the computer and say, yeah, you know, deep learning, you can do this. So, do you really think it's human error there, or is it a human's capacity of cognitive limitation to be able to actually see certain things? I think that we uh, overestimate our heuristic abilities, and I think, like, I'm pretty sure that our computers can can uh, you know, if they can't settle on the same types of heuristics that we can right now, eventually they'll be able to in the near future. That's interesting. I look forward to it. <laughs> Man, you are totally diplomatic. 
Very <laughs> diplomatic. Um, so I saw another sl- uh, the slide share that you presented called Internet of Things, How Data Science-Driven Software is Eating the Connected World. And on one slide, you had a picture of an oil rig disaster. How can the Internet of Things work together with data science to prevent disasters? Yeah, so that's, you know, absolutely, that is just one of the examples. And I think the earlier one that I gave with a, kind of an individual's disaster of deteriorating, so crashing at the hospital um, and, and trying to prevent that, what we have is the ability to allow sensors to alert us about what's happening around us. And I think historically we would say, oh, you know, something's changing with the heart rate. Let's wait until it reaches a certain threshold and alert. Um, you know, the pressure builds up too much. Let's alert. There might be a disaster coming. Um, but really, if we have a lot of different sensors available to us, rather than waiting until it's reached what we consider, I guess going back to your earlier statement about a machine versus a person being able to understand and create these rules, um, you know, we've reached a danger point. Statistically, at this point, it's going to explode soon. Um, Instead, allowing all of the sensors that are there predict an event that has happened in the past and trying to understand how all of these sensors together actually give information. Um, that can then lead to an outcome. And, you know, in that talk, um, we actually talk a lot, not just about the concept of building a predictive model, so saying, you know, there was a failure and how can many of these sensors come together to predict it, um, but actually going sort of into the nitty-gritty still about how there does have to be this component of human engineering of features. How do you take some sort of a time series data and turn it into something meaningful to predict an outcome? So still that need. Um, and actually, I, I look forward to Gotham will have a lot to say on this space um, as he's doing a lot of work in that sensor space right now, predicting failures and maintenance issues. Um, so it is definitely an exciting space. Do we have the server capacity to store the the Internet of Things data? Like, I'm curious if the if this if if our server capacity is growing at a rate that is commensurate with the sensor data growth. I'm I'm sure EMC um, could could speak more to that. I mean, they're in the storage space and they can speak to it. I myself have not paid too much attention to it. I kind of am a um, a user of this and sort of allow other people to architect. Um, I'm sure that, you know, if we look at how much data has been generated in the past year as compared to all all of history, similar to kind of human growth, we're looking at something pretty immense. Um, And, of course, there are a lot of really exciting things that have have sort of been evolving over a long period of time. Uh, For example, even DNA computing, trying to kind of store data in a different way so it's not just bits, not just binary, but... Um, kind of other ways to store data. I also look forward to seeing what happens in that space. But it is, of course, alarming rate of data growth, absolutely. Yeah, and yet the costs have continued to go down. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's that's promising. Um, how, how hard is it to take a high volume of sensor data and build a predictive model? So easy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it varies. I, I think, again, going back to that, that statement around... Um, you know, how it is that you transform kind of time series data or anything into a feature that will go into a predictive model. Um, what's interesting is there are a lot of um, tools out there that try and solve for this problem, um, to try and kind of remove that human element to need to understand what it is that we're looking at and extract these features. Um, and there are, there are plenty of companies to kind of explore in this space that try and 
look for um, interesting other dimensions to explore, um, sort of less something that I focus on. This week of shows on Software Engineering Daily is about women in tech. And I'm curious, like, do you think this is a topic that needs to even be discussed explicitly? Or is it more of a topic where the way to impact the situation of women in tech is to simply showcase women in tech talking about their technical achievements rather than talking about any uh, controversy or, um, you know, female marginalization? Actually, I think that's an interesting perspective. And and I did participate in a a few kind of conversations um, in this space and and also, um, you know, even contributed to an interview um, where other women were interviewed in this space. I think, um, as with anything else, um, it is important to focus, of course, on all of the contributions of any individual, you know, regardless of who it is and, and sort of whether that is gender or race, it's sort of irrelevant. Um, I think calling, you know, an individual out just due to some sort of an attribute, of course, is, um, it's interesting, I think, uh, when we focus on, you know, a woman did this and what that means for women, um, it is very empowering for other women, I believe, who want to be in that space, who then have peers to look toward. But um, at the same time, it also, of course, I think inherently we, women tend to also become a little fearful that, um, you know, they'll be called, that they were called out because they were women. So I, I'm not sure if there's sort of a good solution to the space. Um, I don't ever think that there's uh, anything negative to calling out, um, you know, how a group may feel or be perceived um, to bring awareness, just the same way that we try to bring mindfulness to to other elements of our lives. Um, for example, you know, Apple brings mindfulness to how much we move by putting kind of a step tracker in our phone. So um, I think just uh, for everyone to become conscious, and, and I think in many ways anyone could be guilty of this, um, to, to, to remind ourselves that, you know, everyone is, des- is deserving of praise for the work that they do, irrespective of who they are, um, and, and to be respectful of people's differences. And, and sort of just relying solely on sort of one basis for differentiating individuals can, can be dangerous. So speaking more explicitly, are women on an uneven playing field when they enter the software engineering field? Um, I can't speak to software engineering as I am not necessarily a software engineer. Um, on the data science side, I think, and this is something that I, I've called out a lot, I think there are a lot of very visible women in data science, uh, Monica Rigotti being one of the easiest ones to pull, uh, to, to sort of point out, um, who was there early on with a set of male peers um, at LinkedIn. So I think it, it is a space that feels very open still, um, and I think it's important to maintain that. Um, but I, I wouldn't say we have an uneven playing field because I think I said this once before, data science is specifically about, you know, in a lot of ways, being into interdisciplinary, thinking outside of the box, taking someone's business expertise and some technolo- technological understanding and bringing that kind of to a center. And so in a lot of ways, diversity in thinking is so critical because coming up with new ways and new approaches and having those conversations where it's not just single-minded focus actually means that it is a very interesting space in which to have a lot of diverse backgrounds you know, in any regard, also in, in what you've been trained in, you know, are you someone in operations research? Or are you someone in biomedical informatics? Bringing those groups together actually allows for a lot more ideas to flourish and a lot more approaches to, 
to be developed. I mean, I completely agree with that, but I have a hard time thinking of a field where diversity of opinions is not a good thing. And yet, there I've seen plenty of uh, you know ostracism or marginalization or whatever you want to talk about of women in uh, in software engineering. I, and I know diversity of opinion is is super important there too, because if you end up with a crappy solution that's just hive mindy, it's it's bad. So, um, I mean, that's that was kind of my motivation for doing this week. Is like I've just seen. So many times where I'm like, you know, oh, this this uh, ostracism or this negativity towards uh, women, even if it's subtle, is counterproductive. But oh, it is. I, any any ostracism is counterproductive. But I think what I'm saying is, data science is a field born out of um, you know diverse thinking, out mm. of of uh, kind and of recognizing biases. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> although you know, in that sense. Um, some other fields are the same. I think it's just, it's really that, that that field itself already is bringing together people with such diverse thinking. Um, and so it's interesting in that sense, I always feel everything is welcomed. Um, and, and I'm not, it's not to say that people, and there are women that don't feel potentially marginalized. Um, I can only speak for myself. And of course, I think, uh, you know, any, uh, any respect, I think anytime something occurs, um, it's easy to fall back into the mindset of, oh, this is because I am. But it's also really important that when you have that moment to also step forward and realize, well, uh, you know, this is me and I need not hide it. Um, I need to embrace it and allow it. Um, because, of course, by denying that, for example, you're a woman and, and trying to sort of fit in and fit the mold, you're never going to quite succeed at, at being something that you are not. So instead, acknowledge it, try your best to celebrate it, and focus again on the task at hand. So I'd like to close off by talking a little bit about academia. You spent a lot of time in academia, and I'm curious how the intellectual experience within academia compares to your professional career at Pivotal. So what's interesting is my team is extremely academic in the sense that we all come from um, strong academic backgrounds as well not you know variety of phds and masters and bachelor's degrees across you know different fields of studies and we we all bring that together um at pivotal we still have a lot of the same things that during my graduate school training um were present so we you know we do knowledge sharing we essentially lab meetings um on you know what it is that we've worked on we ask outsiders to come speak we still go to conferences we read papers we publish papers um, so in that sense, Pivotal itself, specifically the data science team, still feels extremely academic with that added benefit of having access to tons of data and a lot of really, really great technology. Do you think there should be a closer relationship between academia and industry? Um, I mean, we have extremely close relationships with academia. As I mentioned, you know, the, uh, the Madlib library was developed specifically with um, Joe Hellerstein at Berkeley, and we have other examples. Um, Chris Ray works on top of Green Plum Database uh, for Deep Dive, for example. And we do work a lot, actually. Um, you know, I had a collaboration with a researcher at Harvard Medical School to sort of assist in some of their research, and we have some other ones that are ongoing. Um, I think it, it, it's an interesting balance because, of course, at the end of the day, um, industry has to concern itself a lot with whether or not, you know, they're profitable, but at the same time, um, it's so fascinating to me that when we allow researchers to access our environments and, you know, we did have a, a large uh, thousand node Hadoop cluster, the analytics workbench that was open 
um, for research. And we did have a lot of research organizations working on top of it. Um, so once you allow kind of young developing minds or researchers in a space to think about new paradigms and not have to focus on, I have to get this grant in order to get the software. It's so interesting because I think a lot of fields are kind of stuck to thinking in a, in another paradigm because of course that's what they have access to. And so they engineer or they build algorithms or they come up with ways to process their data in the paradigm that they have access to. And if you open their minds with new paradigms, access to new technology, technology that all shifts. What do you think about this idea that it's like more noble to work in academia because you can be doing, quote, basic science? Oh, I did, I did a lot of basic science. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think the concept of, of it being more noble is, is probably up to the person who's passionate about that topic. So I, I would say that there there's a lot of um, there's a lot of very interesting work that happens at a basic science level that I think absolutely needs to continue occurring. Um, you know, with within academia, um, there is a lot of basic science that occurs within industry. For example, the pharmaceutical industry, but I think those two spaces interact a lot. Um, you know, the things that happen, I think, that are driven by companies that are concerning themselves with being profitable. Um, again, going back to the example of you know. Um, the iPhone or Fitbit or anything that's out there that's trying to track steps. Yes, you know, at its core, it's concerning itself with how, how do we become profitable, but the things that come out of it, um, research and understanding of movement, potentially looking at multiple sclerosis patients and seeing the way they progress. I think what's so fascinating is the way in that space, um, even though it's driven, of course, by, you know, being profitable, at the same time, there are a lot of really, really interesting contributions that come out of it too. Interesting. Sarah Ernie, thanks so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.